On March 29, 2020, televangelist Kenneth Copeland went on TV and said the following, In the name of Jesus, I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. It is finished. It is over, and the United States of America is healed and well again, saith the mighty spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. The next Sunday, Copeland dramatically exhaled into a camera and said, COVID-19, I blow the wind of God on you. You are destroyed forever, and you'll never be back, end quote. Sixteen months later, it's pretty clear Kenneth Copeland was unable to achieve national healing from COVID by blowing this sort of hot air. He is one of many examples of faith healers making extravagant claims that were later proven to be false. I could give you a ton of examples today, but instead of talking about a bunch of frauds, I want to start by reading a quote from Joni Erickson Tata, who is a Christian author who has been a quadriplegic since she was a teenager. And this quote is about a trip she took in the 1970s to a healing crusade led by Catherine Kuhlman, who was a very famous faith healer. She says, we got to the ballroom early. We wanted to have a good seat. We were escorted, however, over to the wheelchair section. We all waited in anticipation. The lights dimmed, a spotlight came on the stage, and there comes Miss Kuhlman sweeping out in her long white gown with a crescendo of organ music. After some time, the spotlight moves to the far corner of the ballroom, and we can tell something's going on over there, like people getting healed. Are they getting healed? Are they getting healed? And so we're just waiting for the spotlight to come on the wheelchair section, like, hey, come over here where all the hard cases are. But before the service ended, ushers came to escort us all out. No healing was even attempted. And she talks about what a devastating and embittering impact this had on her for many years until she studied the, the Gospel of Mark. But friends, I want to tell you today there are a lot of people who claim they have supernatural authority over sickness, and yet they don't have a very good track record, do they? And they leave spiritual disaster in their wake. But today as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, we're going to find one who truly has authority over all matters of health and illness, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to see Jesus perform a number of healing miracles in Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 through 17. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 8. And as we look at this section today... Not only are we going to see that Jesus has total authority over health and sickness, but I think these miracles will teach us some other profound truths about Jesus as well. First, today we're going to see that Jesus is able to cleanse that which is unclean. Second, we'll see that Jesus is invested with the very authority of God, and he uses that authority to give grace to unlikely people. Third, we're going to see that Jesus, by his merest word or touch, commands the total natural and supernatural realms. And finally, we're going to see what Jesus' miracles teach us about our own needs. But I want to start today with a little bit of review before we get to our text. Because since the end of February, all of our preaching in this book has been about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's been almost six months since we were in a narrative section of this book. And so as we now return to the story of the life of Jesus... Where did we leave off? What was going on with Jesus before he went on the mountain to preach? Well, Jesus had just started his public ministry. He had been baptized, and the Father has publicly proclaimed that Jesus is his well-beloved Son. 
the Spirit has visibly descended upon Jesus. And immediately after his baptism, at the start of chapter 4, we read that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus faced 40 days of hardship and hunger and temptation to prepare him for the difficult ministry he was embarking on and to test him to reveal his authenticity. And those 40 days did just that because Jesus overcame Satan's temptations, demonstrating his immense love and obedience to the Father. And so Jesus is now ready to begin his public ministry. Now at this point, Matthew jumps a little bit ahead in Jesus' story. And he skips over some of the earliest things that Jesus did, like the wedding at Cana. And instead, Matthew picks up the story a little bit later on, right after Jesus returns to the northern region of Galilee, shortly after John the Baptist was arrested. And this is a good place for Matthew to pick up his story about Jesus' ministry because it's in the north. It's in Galilee where Jesus grew up. This is where his disciples were from. This is where he would first become famous. And so Matthew's going to tell us about Jesus' ministry in these early days in Galilee. And I want you to understand as we start reading here in chapter 8 that Matthew has arranged his telling of Jesus' life in Galilee in a manner that might not be immediately apparent to us, but if you read all of the Gospels together, it becomes pretty clear that what he's doing here is he's not working chronologically, he's working topically, okay? Back in chapter 4, Matthew introduced us to three topics that he thinks are the most important things we need to know about when Jesus was in Galilee. Jesus preaching, Jesus calling disciples, and Jesus performing miracles, and these three topics are then topics that Matthew presents at greater length over the next several chapters. So we just spent three whole chapters seeing Jesus preaching. Then today we're going to be in a, a, a section running in chapters 8 and 9 that's really concentrated and emphasizing Jesus' miracles. And then peppered throughout this section and concluding this section in chapter 10, we have a section in which Jesus teaches about discipleship. Okay, so Matthew's not giving us a chronological presentation. Instead, he's arranging things topically. He's pulling related ideas together that are connected based on their theme or their topic. And here, uh, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew's going to be talking about Jesus' miracles. And today, we're going to look at the first three miracles that he has pulled together in this section. Now, if you read like Luke's gospel, which is much more interested in chronology, you'll find out the miracles that we're going to look at today happen at different points in Jesus' ministry, not all in quick succession like we're going to see here. But again, Matthew's pulling this in to make a topical presentation of Jesus' miracles. All right, now, why does he put these first miracles together, this initial group of three? What do they have in common? The miracles we're going to look at today show Jesus' total power over sickness. And we begin to see this now in our first point, as we see that Jesus is able to cleanse that which is unclean. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. And we read, And behold, a leper came to him. Today's passage begins with a very unusual interaction. A person with leprosy approaches Jesus. Now to understand why this is unusual, you've got to understand something about leprosy. Leprosy is a really horrible skin disease. It starts off looking like flaky, irritated skin, but before long it spreads throughout a person's body, damaging their nerves, killing their tissue, disfiguring them. It's a horrible disease. And you can get leprosy by being in close contact with an infected person. 
Because of this, throughout history, lepers have been cast out of their communities to stop the transmission of this disease. That was the case in ancient Israel. In Leviticus 13, God gave Israel a series of tests which the priests were supposed to perform to determine whether somebody with skin irritation had leprosy or it was just, you know, flaky skin. And if they were determined to be a leper, the person was not just said to be sick, they were declared to be unclean, they were banished from the community and consigned to a perpetual quarantine. And not only were lepers supposed to separate themselves from the community, they were under an obligation to alert anybody who passed by them that they were lepers so they didn't accidentally transmit this disease. Leviticus 13.45 says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. What a terrible life, huh? Everything about you had to say to everybody else, Stay away from me. But God mandated this to protect the public health and safety of Israel. Now here in Matthew 8, we find a leper who was supposed to be keeping away from people. And instead of doing that, what do we find? He approaches Jesus. It's a very bold thing to do, right? Breaking quarantine, approaching healthy people. Why does the leper do this? Because Jesus is near and Jesus presents a unique opportunity. That's what we see when the leper speaks in verse 2. He came and knelt before Jesus, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, the leper does some interesting things here. First, he kneels before Jesus. If you're reading the Old King James, you'll find the word worshipped here. Uh, this Greek word can mean either to worship a god or to reverentially kneel before an authority figure. It can mean either one. Second, this leper calls Jesus Lord. Now, we've said in recent weeks, this is a theologically loaded word, which in the Bible usually speaks of God. But in ordinary conversation, this Greek word could also be a respectful term when speaking to somebody in a higher social class than you have. Now, based on the fact we're at the very earliest stages of Jesus' ministry, I think it's too much to assume that this leper has figured out that Jesus is God in human flesh. So I understand him to be making a very respectful and reverential approach. And yet he does better than he knows, right? Because the one before whom he is kneeling is the one who on the last day every knee will bow to. And the one whom he calls Lord is the one who on the last day every tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed Lord. And so the leper reverentially kneels before Jesus. And why does he do this? Because he wants to make a request. Although his approach is so humble and so unpresuming that he doesn't really make a request. He just makes a statement. Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. You can heal my leprosy. The leper does have a profound awareness of at least this much. Jesus has immense power. Jesus will alone can overcome this horrible disease. That's an amazing expression of faith, isn't it? Especially when you consider that in that day, leprosy wasn't the sort of thing that got healed. Leprosy was not medically curable until the middle of the 20th century. To be healed from leprosy would take a miracle. Now, God had made a provision in the Mosaic Law for leprosy to be healed. In Leviticus 14, God told the priests, here are some tests by which you can determine whether a leper has been healed or not. And if they were healed, they could rejoin the community. 
God said to Israel, you should expect to see this happen sometimes. But in truth, it didn't happen very often. In the whole Old Testament, we have a record of leprosy being healed once. Jesus says in Luke 4, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. This is a reference to a miracle in 2 Kings 5. And you know, in 2 Kings 5, the king of Israel says that healing leprosy was the equivalent of raising someone from the dead. That's how unusual and startling a miracle like this was considered to be. In fact, healing leprosy was considered to be so impossible that in all of the surviving stories about legendary miracle workers from all of the ancient cultures around the Mediterranean, there are no stories about anybody ever healing leprosy found outside of the Bible. So it would take a lot of faith for this leper to come to Jesus and say, I know you can heal my leprosy if you want to. This is about as outlandish a miracle as there could be. But he had that kind of amazing faith. Probably because he had heard Jesus had an amazing power to heal. We read about some of Jesus' earliest healings at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4 verse 23 says, Jesus healed every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread. And people brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and Jesus healed them. This lepers heard about Jesus' amazing power to heal. So he comes to Jesus with great belief. If anybody can heal me, Jesus, it's you, and I know you can do it. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will, that is, I want to do this, be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Understand, this would have been a gigantic enough miracle if Jesus had healed this man without touching him. That would have been an amazing demonstration of power. But Jesus does more than just say a word to heal him. He touches this man who is literally untouchable. It's absolutely shocking. In the Jewish way of thinking, if you're ceremonially clean and you touch someone who's unclean, you don't make them clean, they make you unclean. The prophet Haggai talks about this in his book, chapter 2 of his book. He says, if someone carries holy meat and touches bread, does it become holy? And the priest said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean touches it, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it becomes unclean. The holiness and cleanness were not transmissible. Uncleanness was transmissible. And now here's Jesus touching someone who is uncleanness personified. What's going to happen? Is Jesus going to become defiled? No. Because Jesus is the fountain, the source of all holiness and goodness and cleanness. Jesus can't be defiled. Instead, when in his compassion, Jesus touches this untouchable man who had no human contact and says, I want to heal you, immediately the leper was clean. See, friends, Jesus cleanses that which was unclean. He transforms and makes new that which was ruined. What a miracle. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus doesn't say to this man, you're healed, go back to a normal life. He sends the man on a trip. 
go to Jerusalem. Why? Because Leviticus 14 said there were tests to confirm whether a leper had been healed. And Jesus means for these tests to be performed. Why? Well, number one, because Jesus is an obedient Jew. He is going to follow the law of Moses. But more than that, Jesus says this is to be a proof to them. Proof of what? Well, for starters, it's proof to whatever community that this guy goes to live in that he's indeed no longer a leper. But I think there's more than that going on here. Think about it. The law of Moses for 1,400 years included these obscure provisions about recognizing a healed leper, which maybe happened a handful of times ever. Why was this in the law? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? I have come to fulfill the law. The law points to Jesus, including this obscure law about healing leprosy. This is anticipatory for all these years, 1,400 years, saying someday the Messiah is going to come and heal a leper. And we know that because in chapter 11, Jesus says an expectation existed in his day that a time was coming when the blind would receive their sight and the lame would walk and the lepers would be cleansed and the deaf would hear and the dead would be raised. A time of miracles, a time of transformation predicted by the prophets was to come. The time when the Messiah would bring the kingdom. That's what this miracle is most powerfully in evidence of. That what John the Baptist said was true. The kingdom is at hand. That's what this man's trip to Jerusalem was to be. Evidence to the chief priests. The kingdom was at hand. The king has come. And yet while Jesus says, hey, go show yourself in Jerusalem... To the priest, notice what else Jesus says in verse 4. He says, don't talk about this with anybody else. Why not? Probably because of this very same reason. You know, in John 6, we read that Jesus is concerned that crowds who have experienced his miracles want to make him king by force. The messianic expectations of mobs of people in that day who wanted their diseases healed and their bellies full, they wanted to make Somebody like Jesus, the king. So they didn't have to worry about life anymore. They could sit back, put their feet up, and have a good time. But was that God's plan for Jesus' life? No way. Jesus' plan was to go to the cross. And so Jesus sees that if this guy runs around and says, Hey, my leprosy got healed indiscriminately. It's going to cause a lot of interest from the mobs. It's going to cause a lot of impediment to the path that Jesus is supposed to be on. So Jesus says, Don't go talking about this. Don't stir up a popular movement that's going to make the Father's intention uh, more difficult. And so Jesus says, don't talk about this. But what happened? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. Mark 1.45 says, but the man who had been a leper went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This fellow went and disobeyed Jesus. And it made Jesus' ministry more difficult. He had to sleep in the wilderness for a while. He was constantly being mobbed by people. And yet, you know what? Despite knowing this leper would disobey him and make his ministry harder, that did not diminish Jesus' love or his compassion or his willingness to touch an untouchable and make clean what had been unclean. Now, I'm going to save all my application for, for our last point today. So let's move on now to our second point. And here we see that Jesus is invested with the very authority of God, and he uses that authority to give grace to unlikely people. Look at verse 5. 
When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. The town of Capernaum was the center of Jesus' activity in Galilee. And now Jesus returns to his home base, and here he's greeted with another surprising encounter. A centurion, an officer in the Roman army, is waiting for him. Now, the rank of centurion is basically the equivalent of being a captain in the U.S. Army today. So this fellow is a pretty high-ranking officer. And because the way the Romans were back then, what they did when they administered a region was they imported soldiers who were not local. So that means this centurion would have been a Gentile. And based on the fact that Gentiles historically have been pretty oppositional to Jews, it seems a little bit ominous. Jesus comes into this town, and who's waiting for him but a high-ranking Gentile officer in the oppressing Roman army? Doesn't sound like a great buildup, right? Why is he waiting for Jesus? Verse 5, the centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. The centurion has a servant who's important to him, who is profoundly ill. He's paralyzed, and if that wasn't bad enough, the Greek word translated lying here seems to indicate he has been thrown down with some sort of a violent illness, and he is in terrible pain. And this centurion, with all of his influence and his power, has encountered a situation that he cannot solve. He needs help for his servant, who was in a situation beyond ancient medicine, who's probably in a situation beyond modern medicine. There's no medical hope in this situation from a worldly perspective. And so the centurion comes to Jesus and seeks a miracle. And I say, we might say, well, how did this Gentile centurion know about Jesus? Well, maybe like the leper, he had heard about Jesus' reputation. But there's another possibility. In John 4, we learn that Jesus healed the son of a political official. So maybe this centurion had heard about Jesus through his political connections. We can't know for sure. But what we know is that this fellow knows about Jesus' power, and he wants Jesus' help. And notice how the centurion makes his approach to Jesus in a very respectful way. Not with a presumptuous or commanding tone that a lot of self-important people use, right? I'm important. Do what I say or I'll make trouble for you. No, he doesn't do that. I'm rich. There's money in this for you if you help me, you know. No, he doesn't, he doesn't do that either. Instead, he comes and he calls Jesus Lord. Great humility from this powerful Gentile man. In fact, in Luke's account of this incident, we get more details about how the centurion made his approach to Jesus. Luke 7, 3, we read that the centurion heard about Jesus and sent to him elders of the Jews asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Seems that Matthew is summarizing and simplifying this more complex situation. But it seems that the centurion did not actually approach Jesus directly. He sent these intermediaries asking for Jesus' help. But again, a Gentile, powerful man approaching a Jewish religious leader for help, not commanding him, using respected people from Israel to approach him and to plead with Jesus. This just shows how far this man is willing to humble himself here. And how does Jesus respond to all of this? Again, he has compassion. Look at verse 7. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. In Greek, this might actually be a question. Jesus 
might be saying something like, you want me, a Jew, to come and heal your servant? He's drawing attention to this strange social structure of a powerful Gentile approaching a Jewish religious leader. And we learn from Luke's account that at this point, Jesus agrees to go. And he began to walk towards the centurion's home. Luke 7, 6 says, Jesus went with them, with these elders. But when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, again, the centurion is going to speak to Jesus, but again, he's going to speak through intermediaries. He doesn't come himself, but he speaks through his friends. This is what he says in Matthew 8, 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. This centurion is full of surprises. And here he says two surprising things. First, that I'm not worthy to have you in my home, Jesus. Now, you'd think that in first century Galilee, a high-ranking military officer from the oppressing force wouldn't consider one of the oppressed people to be higher and more exalted than him. But that's exactly what he's saying here. He's calling Jesus Lord again, and he says, Jesus, you're more glorious than I am. You're higher ranking than I am. I'm not worthy to host you. So he says, don't come to my house. But if the centurion doesn't want Jesus to visit his home, why did he reach out to Jesus? How can Jesus heal his servant without seeing the servant? This is the second surprising thing the centurion says. He says, Jesus, if you just say the word where you're standing, my servant over here will be healed. The centurion is so convinced of Jesus' power and authority in this matter, he doesn't think that Jesus has to be physically present to heal the servant. He just has to say the word even from a distance. It's an amazing confidence that this centurion has in Jesus, is it not? I don't know about you, but I think if I was a centurion, even if I thought that Jesus could heal my servant, I probably would have said, please come by anyway, Lord. You know, like, maybe it'll work better if you're actually here. That's not how the centurion thinks at all. The centurion doesn't want to inconvenience Jesus. He says, you just say a word where you're at and go on about your important business, and I'm sure that will be enough. What a humble approach. What great faith this man has. And why does this Gentile centurion have this kind of faith? Interestingly, it seems that he has this faith as a result of profound reflection about his own position in the army. As he has thought about what it means to be a high-ranking officer in the Roman army, he has drawn some conclusions about how he thinks things probably work for Jesus. And it turns out that his conclusions are correct. Here's what he says in verse 9. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion's part of an authority structure. He's under an authority, the Roman emperor. And in this system, the centurion gives orders. And the people who are below him in the chain of command have to obey him because the centurion represents a higher authority. He represents the emperor. So if you disobey the centurion's orders, you're not just disobeying him, you're defying the emperor. So when the centurion gives orders, people obey. And from this, the centurion has properly reasoned about Jesus. He figures out that Jesus seems to be a very high-ranking figure in a much greater authority structure, the authority structure of Almighty God. 
And he thinks, if I'm just a centurion representing the Roman emperor and people obey my orders, how much more will Jesus, who represents Almighty God, be able to speak an order and it will happen, even if he gives the order from a distance? See, he grasps a deep truth. Jesus wields the full authority of God. And this leads him to have amazing confidence in Jesus. And what is Jesus' response to this? Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Jesus was amazed. You might think, well, how can Jesus be amazed? He's fully God. That's true. But he's also fully man. And in his humanity, Jesus is amazed by the faith of this Gentile officer. There's only two times in the whole Bible where we read that Jesus was amazed by something. Here, with the belief of this centurion, who's a Gentile, and in Mark 6, when Jesus is in his own hometown, and he's amazed by the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. It's a sad contrast. Those who you wouldn't, you wouldn't think believe do, and those who you think ought to believe don't. And that's the contrast Jesus draws here. Look at verse 10. Jesus marveled. And said to those who follow him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And the Israelites had the promise of the Messiah. They'd been expecting the Messiah. They knew the Messiah would perform miraculous works, the same works Jesus was performing. But they're not the people who astonish Jesus with their great faith. It's this Gentile figure from an occupying force with who knows what religious background. But he knows enough to trust Jesus. It's an amazing contrast. And Jesus says, this is a sign of things to come. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the first century, the Jews were immensely confident that because of their ethnicity, because of their heritage, because of their descent from the patriarchs, and them having the law that they were the people who would inherit the kingdom. And when the Messiah came, he was going to judge all those corrupt Gentiles, those low, dirty dogs. But what does Jesus say? Actually, in the end, people will come from all over the world to enjoy eternal blessedness in the company of the patriarchs. Not just Jews, but Gentiles from every place. As Revelation 5 says, there will be people from every tribe and language and people and nation who are in the kingdom. But those who by their birth ought to have been the people that would have enjoyed the blessings of the kingdom won't necessarily receive those blessings. Many, many of them will be thrown into outer darkness. This is a picture of hell. And the torments of hell are described with weeping and gnashing teeth. This is a picture of anguish and hatred. Why does Jesus say this? Because this Gentile centurion's faith is a taste of things to come. Salvation's not a matter of ethnic background. It's a matter of faith. And those who believe in Jesus, both Jewish and Gentile, will be saved. They're the true heirs of the patriarchs. They will inherit the promises. But Jews who reject Jesus will forfeit the blessings that should have been theirs. And they will be forever excluded along with all who do not believe. And that's what Jesus says to his disciples. That's the theological point he draws from this shocking encounter. But Jesus ends the encounter by again speaking to the centurion. Verse 13. 
And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now notice, the servant was not in the end healed because of his own faith, but because someone who believed interceded for him. And on the basis of the centurion's faith, Jesus healed the servant immediately with the word from a long distance. What a miracle! Now again, I'm going to save my application for the last point. But let's move on now to the third point, which is that Jesus, by his merest word and touch, commands the natural and supernatural realms. We've seen two amazing miracles so far, right? Jesus cleanses a leper by touching him, and Jesus speaks a word and heals a paralyzed, tormented man from a distance. Now we see a third display of Jesus' mighty power. Verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, so we'll stop there for a minute, Capernaum was the hometown of some of Jesus' first disciples. And now that he's back in Capernaum, Jesus goes to visit Peter's home. And what does Jesus see when he goes in the home? Verse 14, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Peter had a wife. Roman Catholics who today regard Peter as the first pope might find that rather interesting. But it's true, Peter had a wife. We see this also later in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, where we learn that Peter took his wife with him when they traveled the Mediterranean world preaching the gospel. Well, here we meet Peter's wife's mother, and she's in Peter's home, and she is seriously unwell. Again, this word lying is the same word used to describe the centurion servant back in verse 6. She has a violent illness that has thrown her down. This isn't like she's running a low-grade temperature. She is quite sick. And what happens? Verse 15. Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Jesus touches her hand, and immediately she gets better. And it's not like, oh, I feel a little better today, and we'll see how I'm doing tomorrow. No, she is the whole way well. And we see how thoroughly she's healed, because What's she do? She gets up and she starts working around the house and she starts serving Jesus. You can just imagine a little grandmotherly lady saying, Oh, Jesus, you must be hungry. Let me fix you some food or something like that, right? One minute, she's desperately ill. The next, she's working in the house. How is this possible? Because Jesus has real absolute power over illness. This isn't like the phony faith healers we see today who say to a cancer patient, you're healed, and then a few weeks later that person dies. Or who bring the folks with psychosomatic illnesses on the stage and leave the people in the wheelchairs off in the corner because they know they can't heal them. No, friends, when Jesus heals you, you are truly healed because Jesus' slightest touch possesses all of the authority in the universe. You know, even Jesus' enemies admitted that Jesus' miracles were genuine. If they could have disproved the miracles, you know they would have tried to do so. You know what we find instead? Not just that they can't disprove them, but they admit the miracles really happen. In chapter 12 of this book, Jesus' enemies admit Jesus has supernatural power, but they don't want to admit he's the Messiah, so they say, oh, that power comes from the evil one, which is a claim that Jesus immediately destroys logically. But this same explanation was transmitted from the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day to all of their followers through a work called the Talmud. You might have heard of the Talmud. And centuries later, when the Talmud was compiled, we find in it rabbis talking about Jesus, not saying that he was a fraud, 
but saying he was a sorcerer or he was a magician. What an admission from Jesus' opponents. Jesus really worked supernatural wonders. These healings really happened. Even his enemies admitted it. Because, friends, Jesus had the entire power of God at his disposal. And he used it to heal the sick. But beyond commanding elements in the natural order, we also find that Jesus' authority extends to the supernatural world. Look at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Again, we find Jesus healing the sick, but we also find Jesus liberating people from demonic oppression. Now, God willing, we'll talk more about demonic oppression in a few weeks. But for the moment, see, that, see this. Jesus has total power, not just over the seen world, but the unseen world. As powerful as demons are, and they're pretty powerful, Jesus is able to cast them out of people by just saying a word, liberating people who they're tormenting with the merest the command. Friends, Jesus has total authority, not just over the natural world, but over the supernatural world too. So that's what we see in each of these accounts of Jesus' miracles. He has immense authority over sickness and health, over all that is visible and invisible. But what should you and I take from all of this this morning? That's what I want us to consider now in our final point. What did Jesus' miracles back then tell us about our own situation today? Because I think it's one thing for us to intellectually know that Jesus has total power over all things, but it's quite another thing to know what to do with that truth. For instance, does the fact that Jesus heals these people in this passage mean that if I ask Jesus to heal my illness in faith, that he must do so? Does today's passage show us that perhaps there are people who can go around and wield the total authority of Jesus to heal today? Should we listen to faith healers who claim to be able to heal every malady? Or, if we ask Jesus for healing and don't receive it, does that mean Jesus has no compassion for me? Does it mean that my request or my faith was somehow deficient? What should we do with today's passage? Well, Matthew helps us interpret what we've seen with the last verse in this morning's text. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. Matthew says, This was to fulfill... What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah? He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Once more, Matthew returns to his favorite theme, that Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And Matthew ties these healing miracles of Jesus together with the prophecy from Isaiah. Specifically, this quotation is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is a very important prophecy, 700 years before Jesus was born, that one day he would go to the cross and die as a substitute for human sin. Let me read you an excerpt from this glorious prophecy. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
I don't know if you caught it, but right in the middle of that section is the line that Matthew quotes. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Hebrew words there in Isaiah translated griefs and sorrows often carry the sense of sickness and pains. And so Matthew's translation in chapter 8 verse 17 is pretty literal. All right, but what does it mean? What does this prophecy about Jesus' death have to do with his miracles of healing? The modern faith healing movement says this verse tells us Jesus died to secure our physical healing so that Christians have a right to claim as we plead the blood of Jesus that that entitles us to physical relief from every pain and disease. Is that what Matthew's saying? I don't think so. Why not? Because in Isaiah 53, what is the sickness that the prophet says the Messiah will heal by his death? It's not a virus. It's not a bacteria. It's our sin. We each have gone off. We all have gone off like straying sheep. That's what Isaiah says requires healing. Our transgressions. And that's what Jesus healed at, at, at the cross with his death. Friends, today we may come to this passage really interested in it because we're in a public health crisis. Or perhaps because we have a bad diagnosis or someone that we care about is very sick. And every one of those concerns is legitimate and important. But as important as those concerns are, we all have a much bigger problem than our physical health. We are all imperiled by our sin. The book of Genesis says God made this world absolutely good with no sickness or death. But Romans 5 says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam rebelled against God and brought ruinous consequences to this world. And friends, we are all born under the curse of sickness and death. And worse than that, we're born as sinners by nature and then we become sinners by choice. We compound our sin. So we not only deserve the heritage of physical death we receive from Adam, we deserve a worse fate. We deserve eternal death. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And friends, in our natural sinful condition, we all stand defiled. Like the leper in today's passage. You say, boy, that leper, he was in a bad spot, wasn't he? You know what? Apart from Jesus, we're all in a much worse spot. We all have a much deeper pollution. We all were headed for a much worse quarantine. Because we all deserve eternal separation from God forever in hell. And yet, as we've seen this morning, Jesus in all his goodness and holiness and power and authority is filled with compassion. And he uses his mightiest power to help the unlikeliest of people. You know, in the first century, most Jews would have thought it was scandalous to think that the Messiah would hang out and help lepers and Gentiles and old women. That's what Jesus did because he's that compassionate. Those are people that weren't valued in the first century, but Jesus valued them. Jesus cares about those who are outcast and those who are marginalized and those who are rejected by society. But you know what's even more amazing than that? Is that Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. In showing mercy to cursed rebels, indeed, Jesus gives his grace to the unlikeliest people, to you and me, who didn't deserve it. And what does he do? He brings us the healing that we most desperately needed. Healing the worst disease there is, which is sin. That's why Jesus says he came to this earth. 
Luke 5, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And as Isaiah prophesied on the cross, Jesus secured the basis of salvation for all those who would come to him in repentant faith. 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There's Isaiah 53 again. And that's the greatest miracle of all. Jesus imparts life to the spiritually dead. And that's what these miracles point to. If Jesus can heal diseases as absolutely and thoroughly as he heals them in this passage, we can trust that Jesus will heal our sin that absolutely and thoroughly. If Jesus can radically transform those who are desperately ill by making them totally well, then we can know that Jesus also has the power to make us new so that when we come to Christ, it can be truly said of us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, maybe you say, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but what I really need right now is healing from this injury or from this illness. Yeah, 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 spiritual healing's nice, but where's my miracle? And if that's you today, I would say to you two things. First, with all respect and love, I think you've elevated the miracles we see in our passage over the greater reality that they point to. The idea is not Jesus performed healings then, so I should get a healing today. The idea is Jesus performed healings then, anticipating the greatest healing he would perform at the cross, and that is what God gives us access to, which is a much better healing. Friend, don't forget what your greatest need really is. It's not physical healing. Don't make this world absolute and put all your hope in this life being improved. The true wonder, the really important thing in the end is, is your sin cleansed. And if you know Christ, you already have received the greatest miracle that God can work. But second, what I want to say to you is this. If you are battling a health crisis, pray. We saw in our passage that the prayer of the leper was answered. He was healed. The prayer of the centurion was answered. His servant, who he prayed for, was healed. Friends, we're always to pray. 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And the God we pray to is the same God who healed leprosy and paralysis in today's passage. The same Jesus who by a word drove out demons and healed remotely. He is the same Jesus who is interceding for his people today. So if you're in a health crisis, pray. Because sometimes Jesus does miraculously heal people. But I also want you to know, healing may not be God's will if you ask for it. Certainly I hope that it will be. But 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that even the Apostle Paul had to face a terrible illness. And he prayed to God three times to grant him healing. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes it is God's will that we don't receive healing in this life. Or at least not an immediate healing. Why? Well, there are doubtless many good reasons God has for not healing us. But let me just point you to one such reason we find in the Bible. Which is that when we suffer hardship, our difficult experience is meant to strengthen our faith and make us more like Jesus, who is the man of sorrows. If you want to read more about how God uses hardship in our lives, read the first verses of the book of James. But friends, we should pray for healing, and sometimes God heals us either through the natural processes of the body, or through medicine, or through a miracle. But sometimes God may choose not to heal us, at least not right away. And if we should find that is God's answer when we seek healing, we must not despair. Instead, we must remember two precious promises we find in the Bible. 
The first is this, Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And what is the good God will bring about in his people's life? It tells us in the next verse that we will be conformed to the image of his son. God will accomplish his good purposes in our lives through everything we experience, both good and bad. He will complete the good work he has started in us, believing friends. And the path that we are on right now is the path that he has sovereignly ordained for us such that he will fulfill all his good purposes in us as we go through this particular path of life. Every good and bad thing that we experience is calculated to produce in us what he means to produce. And it will ultimately point us and end with glory. And that leads to the second thing that we must know today. There is an absolute biblical promise of physical healing. Yes, Christ's death has secured our health. But that is not a promise for this world. It is a promise for the world to come. Because, believing friends, the day is coming when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And on that day, the people of God will live forever in resurrection bodies, impervious to sickness and death. One day, believing friend, you will be healthier than you have ever been when you take your place at the eternal banquet alongside the patriarchs and the saints from all the ages. Jesus gives a foretaste of that ultimate health and renewal through the miraculous healings we've seen today. But we need to understand miraculous healing is not the norm for this creation, but it will be the rule for the next one. And it is their friends that we who believe will one day obtain full healing. And that is the ultimate purpose for which Jesus died. To reconcile this broken world and to redeem for himself a people for his own possession. To dwell with him in the new creation forever. That is our hope. It's not endless health in this world. So friends, if we're sick or we're anxious about other people around us being sick, let's pray. But let's also remember the promise of God's word. This world is not our home. A better world is coming, which is. Today, if you have never repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection, you need to know you've got the worst possible diagnosis. You stand condemned of sin. You are headed for eternal death. Turn to Jesus and be saved. But today, if you do know Jesus, then rejoice because he has compassion on sinners like us. And he has taken decisive action to reconcile us to himself so that we might live with him forever in perfect health and in eternal life. So let's praise Jesus who indeed forgives all our iniquity and heals all our diseases. Let's pray.